Hello and welcome to HD Longwave, the podcast brought to you by Hair Development, the UK's premier, longest established hair loss solutions, extensions and hair replacement company. I'm Janice Levy, HD's Creative Director and your HD Longwave host. Each Longwave will bring you guests who are experts in their field, successful in business, in life, along with tales of the city, hairy tales of the city and beyond. Today we are welcoming Scott Stringfellow. So thank you Scott for taking the time to come to London and be our guest on the HD Longwave. Yeah, very welcome. Scott Stringfellow is a nightclub entrepreneur who followed in his famous father's footsteps and added new clubs to the Stringfellow's name. Scott has spent much of his career in the hot seat as a racing car driver and safety car driver. He is understated, kind, and we share a friendship that has lasted since we were teenagers. Scott, it's really good to have you as a guest on HD Longway. Uh, very good. Well, you didn't try and give away our ages there. Very good. Certainly well not ages a number, because <laughs> say no more. Shall we start with how we met how long we've known each other, and your mother Coral's wonderful wedding in Vermont, where I was one of her bridesmaids. Gridlock in Harlem. <laughs> but I was talking about that recently, actually, yesterday. You were talking about gridlock there. That was funny. Yeah, well, when we first met, well, obviously it was to do with my father's nightclub, Stringfellows. And you know, I, I can't remember the exact... I know the club opened in 1980. We didn't come to down to London as a family properly till 81. And it must have been during 81 or 82 when I first met you. When I thought, oh, this girl, very like me. Wow. She's very like my age in the, cl- in the club, underage in the club, you have to say. We're allowed to say that now because we're older. But, uh, yeah, so it was quite nice when you get across, come across people around the same age because I was like 14, uh, 15, 16 coming to the club. So you were too, sneaking in, you know, under the rate. Under the radar, so to speak. So, yes, that's, we kind of got to know each other then with your long flowing red hair and flowing dresses and stuff. It was, uh, that's when I kind of clocked you in the club. Going, oh, wow. Oh, she knows my dad even better. <laughs> I did. I knew your dad really well. And he knew my parents really well, too, because I remember that mum and, mummy and daddy used to come to the club at two, three in the morning for breakfast. Yeah. And I think it was when your mum, Coral, came to London and realised I was a nice girl that she and I became really close too, so much so that when she remarried and had this incredible wedding in Vermont, I was one of her bridesmaids. Yes, uh, you were there and quite a brother, and by one of my old school friends, Dominique. And by that time, an ex-girlfriend, Becky Truman, she came and uh, it was you and you, they were all there on, with me around each at the in the on the bus going through London, uh, London that's a trip, isn't it? Going through yeah. New York, yeah, that's it. Coming off the plane at New York, and we got stuck in a, a gridlock that was it about five hours or something? Ten hours. That's it. Good job the bus had its own loo. <laughs> no, it was amazing because I know your mum chose two blonde bridesmaids, two brunette bridesmaids, and two redheads, and the redheads were were Becky. And yeah, Bob that's right. Yeah, um, Scott, as the son of Peter Stringfellow literally the king of nightclubs why did you initially choose to go your own way when you could so easily have just stepped right into an incredibly successful business actually i was going to funny enough from where we are now not a stone's throw is a barbican where i went to stage school when i moved down from manchester to london 
And um, and I was there in the early days at, at, at stage school. And when it came to leaving, I literally had about a month off. And then I kind of went headlong into working for Dad, funny enough, when he was building the Hippodrome or rebuilding the inside tank. It still was the talk of the town then. And he was ripping the insides out and covering it up so nobody got all upset about it. And he made it into the Hippodrome. And I was doing, when I first came, I was doing things like door surveys and things. But before that, I was a, I, I used to work for a, a marketing company during the summer holidays at school as a, a, an office boy, basically. And I was cycling around London and dropping letters off and doing jobs and getting teas and coffees and stuff. And that was quite entertaining. But then when I went and worked for Dad when I left school, that was interesting as well because I'm there doing these boring jobs like the door survey thing so I had to measure everything, say where it was. And now the ones downstairs in the basement, they were really cold and a bit spooky and everything. And I'd clean out rooms and stuff. So I did all these menial jobs, which is quite good, to be honest. When you learn, you can't expect to jump into a great um, job straight away, let's say. Some people do because they get degrees and this, that, and the other. And I never did any of that. I didn't do college. I didn't do uni. I literally went and worked for Dad for a while. And then when it was all ready to go, I started doing the lighting. And I was uh, a follow spot operator and a little bit of lighting jobs as well. At the Hippodrome. I remember appearing at the Hippodrome myself on stage. I in think I did the lighting for it. <laughs> that, that's all coming I, back. I remember that song, song French, French Kissing. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That, was, that was I the won't one. sing it. Co-written by Andre Jacquemin mm. and the guy who produced Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Oh, oh I didn't know that. That was amazing. That was, I didn't even realise it was you lighting me at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? That's one of the wonderful things that I've always loved about you because you could have stepped into that that whole career so easily but you were always conscientious and you were always a hard worker mm. but you really did truly follow your heart didn't you to to with your passion for well, a racing car i have to say there was a bit of a crossover because uh at some do we did a, a charity thing there was an auction and my dad bought this motor racing package which was tickets to the british grand prix le mans trip and also initial trial at brands racing school and i did that I had an American license for a little while, which helped me to get in to do that and have a go at the age of 16. And it was doing that, and then I was doing racing school on and off while going to normal stage school. And I never really thought... I wanted to race cars, but I didn't know if I was ever going to get the chance. But then midway through 1984, uh, we got approached, basically, by somebody at a racing car show at the beginning of the year because I'm showing my dad around, look at this, and I'm trying to get him into the idea of, you know, putting us in a racing car and racing and stuff. And we went to a couple of stands, and one of them, they said, oh, we've got a, a racing driver that's getting married. Could we come and do a deal where, you know, you can look after him at the club, and maybe we'll get your son to do a test drive at Silverstone. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, can we do that? Yeah, we can, okay. So Russell Spence came and had his, uh, um, his stag do <laughs> at the Hippodrome. Which was a funny story in itself, actually, but uh, which I'm not entirely sure if I can do talk about on the podcast. But there you go. But uh, I'll tell you later. <laughs> Remind me. Uh, but um, that kind of led to me doing a test drive in a proper racing car, an up to date one, and it was interesting. And then we kind of snowballed. I can't remember exactly how happened. I ended up doing some racing halfway through '84 with a team called Richard Dutton Racing. And by that point, I was getting close to th- doing the club at nights and I was doing a little bit of that I'm thinking this is you know the club was killing me off I wasn't eating properly 
uh, I was living at night and spending all day in bed. And I had a relationship with a girl called Sarah at the time who I was at school with. And that wasn't going well because of all my night, late nights and stuff and things. And eventually I had something I had to give. And I, don't, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I managed to... My dad said, I'd give me the chance to go and do what I wanted to do. And I managed to go race for Richard Durham Racing. In the latter half of 1984, I did a load of races. And it was quite entertaining. I enjoyed that. And then uh, I managed to meet somebody else who tried to get me to be develop our own team, trying to run before we could walk, basically. And this is part of where things kind of develop within yourself. You have to learn. The team in 1985 was my team manager turned out to be a bit of a crook. Uh, has to be said, so I'm not going to mention his name, but see, uh, I learned a lot that year, even though there was a lot of things going on around me that I didn't realise were happening. At the end of the year, I realised what was going on, and I stepped away from the team after the last race of the year, and I really was about to give up, but then my friend Richard Dean says, come and have a word with my team, Jim Lee Racing, he's a really nice guy, and uh, you know, if you're going to carry on next year, you really want to talk to him. Don't go thinking it's some super flash thing. It's not. It's a northern team. They run a good ship, and they're very, very meticulous, and they're good. Come and have a chat with him. So I had a chat. He invited me to a test day at Mallory Parks. I was running in a Reynard 85, which was horrendous. Unfortunately, it was a bad car that year for them, and it used to dart left and right under braking before corners, which I didn't realise was a big problem because I was a bit green behind the ears for that. For that. And he said, come and try my car because I solved that problem. So we went to Mallory and also have a go in a Formula Ford 2000. So I had to go in this Formula Ford 1600, which is like the one I had. And it was a million percent better than my car. And I thought, oh, God, if only I knew what I was doing, you know, to, to kind of make that kind of change. And then I'd go in a two-litre for today, and it was fantastic. And he said, if you can, if, if you want to race uh, with a team, would you consider racing with us? And I went and thought about it, and I kind of asked Dad, if, look, if we do this properly again, this time I want to go with a team, not do it on my own again, because that was horrendous. He said, yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, let's go again. So then we did, and we got a different car, Van Diemen R36. I went with Jim, and I had a monumental year, basically. I didn't work in the club at all. I hardly ever went in. I spent a lot of time just living up north, basically, and I won two championships, Chairman Volton and Style of Manship. Uh, we missed Mallory. you when you weren't in the club, Scott, because it, it kind of did seem empty. I kind of just disappeared off the face of the earth. You did for a while, and I remember your absolute dedication to the to the cause, and yeah. I, I, that's brought back a memory, actually, that I had completely forgotten about. But I remember, I, I'm not even sure if you were there, although we were friends at the time. I remember when your father, God rest his soul, threw me a premiere party for my first movie. Mm. Were you there? I think that was in 1986. 86. I feel like I might not have, I don't know. He, he had invitations printed. They had me and Patrick McNee, that wonderful actor oh, from The Avengers, because yeah, yeah, yeah. he was in the movie, and Linda Hamilton was in it from The Terminator, and he threw this huge party for me right. at Stringfellows, because Stringfellows was the, the ultimate. place to be. Absolutely. I mean, we lived there every single night. Well, it was big of the 80s. It was a real part of the 80s scene Absolutely. in London. Absolutely. I mean, anybody who was anybody was there, right, yeah. at the club. Except, Except me. I was already racing cars. <laughs> <laughs> but saying that, I did come back. I did come back to live in London from yeah. for 88, and that's when I started coming back in the club. I was doing Formula 3 back that yeah. point. I remember because there were lots of parties at that time that we would all go to, yeah. whether it was your dad's party or whoever's. And so, Speaking of the club, 
um, recalling the Beverly Hills location of Stringfellows, which yeah. opened in 1990. Mm -hmm. I remember those days well because I was living and working in Hollywood under contract to NBC, and I helped you open the club. Mm. And I worked at the club. I was a soap actor by day, a VIP host by night at Stringfellows on Rodeo Drive. That's the time trying to sleep. Until <laughs> <laughs> it all got too much for me and NBC said, it's enough. You choose. So yeah. I chose NBC. And I remember your dad was I up. think you did the right thing, because honestly, nights are a nightmare to do. And when I came over, I came for the opening of the LA Club. Yeah. And at the time, I hadn't got any racing lined up. I wasn't even instructing. I was doing nothing, zero. In fact, that was a, a st almost... It came a couple of years later, but I had a, a, a period of depression. But before I got there, I went over to LA, saw that a wonderful... And I still, to this day, think that's the best club we ever built. Because it was wonderful. So, two floors. Yeah, right at the top of two Rodeo Drive. Yeah. Opposite the building. Like a European uh, town, basically. Yeah. And anybody who was anybody would be at the club. And I remember that I loved the fact that I could stand at the red rope, surrounded by um, all the security guards, yeah. and point to people, you can come in, you can't. <laughs> yeah, you can come in. No, not you. It was oh my gosh the power that rope wielded it was incredible. But you you moved you moved <laughs> on again didn't you and you you settled back into the safety cars. Well that didn't come for many years. Yeah. But I'll just say in the LA place which was amazing. I I went to go watch it and then he said, "Can you come and do the lighting for us because the lighting DJ we come can't be around for about a, a little while. Can you understand? But I only went for ten days and I hired a Mustang convertible from Rentarec." At $55 a day, I thought, oh, 10 days, I can go with that. And then when he says, I need you to stay on, I'm thinking, that's going to have to go because I can't afford $55 a day as long as I stay here. And he put me in the uh, Rodeo Drive Hotel. I was there for a month and I had a little Volkswagen Rabbit eventually. They were. And then I was in and out there and getting to know. And I used to go to Larry Parker's diner down the road at the end of the night with some of the. Yeah. The one with the doors that never locked because it was open 24-7, 365 days a year. I loved that place. Yes, he was great. In fact, I went in there one day because get, you get to know the guy. And he says, come over here, I've got a booth for you. So I went, oh, thanks, I'll go over. And he, said, and he goes, there, and there's my name on the on the wall, on a, a thing he'd put. And also in the menu, which I've still got, which is like, uh, sorry? No, 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 I was just a, a name on the wall because he had, Famous names. But you know how he had, uh, like, Tom Cruise burgers and stuff like this? Well, he had in his menu, he said, look at this, and he opens up the menu, which is 20 pages long, because it was breakfast, lunch, dinner, and anything else in between. And um, yeah, and I found Peter Stringfellow's curried vegetables. <laughs> and I've still got that at home. Uh, it's like, that was amazing. I've never seen that anywhere else, obviously. Unlocking more memories. Yes. But like you said, well, the, the, the safety guard thing didn't come for a long time. So when I went back to England, and I wasn't involved with the clothes. I started instructing again, because I did instruct for a year from 88 to 89. And then I kind of had an accident on the track mm -hmm. once while instructing somebody. And I took a year off, basically, and I, I concentrated on racing. I had a great 89. But many years later, I started instructing, and it started to snowball slightly. I decided I'm going to go in that direction now. And I was driving all over the country, doing different circuits, Working for mainly uh, Brands Hatch owned circuits at the time, but so it's Alton, Silverstone, uh, sorry, Alton, Snetterton, Cadwell Park, Brands. These things are all big distances between them. And I'm there living in London at first, and eventually we moved to Enfield. 
because my mother got a house there before she decided to go and live in America. And um, obviously get married out there. Yeah, yeah, we all we've chatted about. But um, I kind of was kind of th- trying to develop that. And that carried on until I decided I couldn't cope with the N25 anymore and then I moved to Aylesbury, where I still live now. And from there, I started doing Thruxton and Donington consistently all the time and other manufacturer work. That's the thing you had to do. As an instructor, you have to keep the money coming in and try and find the most lucrative things you can. Manufacturer work with the best payers and hard to get on, so you had to get in with a school that used to deal with all those. And I went with Thruxton because you had a lot of major uh, uh, manufacturers. And I did that for quite a few years. And uh, it carried on right up to... um, well, through the 90s, all the way up there to 99, and... When did, I, when did sorry? Angels. Angels. You know what? I keep forgetting when they actually opened, because that kind of opened, and I was but I was away a lot, and then I started working. I was there at the opening, which was 94, 93, something like that, I think. I can't remember exactly, because he was also getting involved... He had America as well, because he had New York as well as about L.A. For, well, in fact, we had New York, Miami, and L.A., because when I was there in 89 racing, I went to Miami Club. And that was a phenomenal place as well. Except it was just a little bit in the wrong place. Because uh, Coconut Grove, which is now buzzing, but back then, which was quite new, didn't really happen for Dad. It was a real frustration for him. And then when the economy went down on both sides of the Atlantic, you've got to remember that Stringfellas London was the backbone for everything. And he didn't want to hurt that. So he had to sort things out. And he went through a stage where he really didn't know where the next term was going to be. And um, then one of his friends said, Peter, come with me. I've got to show you something. And he took him to a girl club in Florida. And he says, oh, I can't see how this is. I'm paying money for girls to dance with me. Oh, I can't be doing with that. So he eventually got dragged to one. And he was there. And he says he didn't get there at first. But once he was there, he discovered in a, in a short space of time, he, spelt, he spent $500 in a night, which he's never done anywhere else. Underneath, it's a really expensive restaurant. But he was like, he suddenly, like, there was a light bulb moment. Hang on a minute. <laughs> and that's when he decided, because the LA club, um, because the economy being a bit of a struggle, the Japanese owners of the land in LA didn't want to drop their rent. Cause he said, if you drop the rent a bit, I can stay there and get more established and everything will fine. You can put it up to wherever you want. Let's just get through this right now. And they didn't want to know. So he had to make a decision. So he had to... Kill off LA, which was like, Dad, what are you doing? That was a massive hole left in Beverly Hills. And it's never really been filled. Well, not really, no. I mean, but that that whole thing that looked like a street of Europe and stuff, and Dad was at the top, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of closed New York Place down for a refit because then he got involved with this guy because they got to find the person to do with it and then reopened the New York Club as uh, Stringfellas Pure Platinum and it was a girl club. It also got rid of Miami because that was killing him because it wasn't enough people coming in because of the area, which is a real shame. If it had been in... Is it Venice Beach? Over that way? Or one of the beaches over in... I'm again mixed up between LA. Yeah. LA does have Venice yeah. Beach. But the, the beach in... In Miami. Miami. South what Beach? That one? Sorry? Sorry? South Beach? Possibly. Possibly. If it had put a club there, it had yeah. been flying. But it, it didn't quite work. And he always, always said, something I learnt from that is it's all about location. location. And timing, which your father was fantastic at. Because there was, was nothing very... to touch Stringfellows. Well, well, there's, a, there's another side to that that I'll come to as to what made him so very good at what he did. Because he was really good with people and really good with uh, 
knowing the right time to do something. And he jumped on this girl club thing and he realised it was making a fortune uh, in uh, New York. And he said, right, I'm going to take this to England. Because even though we already had that version in Soho that was a little bit of a seedy reputation, it was kind of making it more high class, if you can possibly think about that. It happened. And he kind of refitted stringers steadily. He used to have this, the girly thing on a weekend, uh, on, the, on a couple of days a week. And he was steadily changing it. It's like it bled over to other days. So eventually it was there, you know, six days a week. And it was like, oh, my God, he's changed the club from what it was to something else. And he was right at the time because it made a fortune. She had a lot of the city boys coming in, bringing clients in, spending fortunes. And it did ro- rode uh, the wave for quite a while. And then when the city people got told, you can't go putting that on your expenses anymore, you've got to stop that. That was the beginning, as my dad looked back, beginning of the end, he reckons. And it was a steady, steady decline. And I have to say, in all honesty, that whole industry is still declining now. Even before my dad passed away, we had a conversation about that, which I'll come to. But basically, he was uh, he, he rode that bubble. And they also had the club in... Um, the girly club in, in in Wardour Street, and he changed that name a few times. Then he also put one in Paris, and that was going quite well because it was like very cosmopolitan. You're French, they don't care, they'll go anywhere they want. As long as they feel comfortable and happy, they'll go there. Those girls or not, it don't matter. But you you were the director of Angels in Wardour. Uh, I know I was a club director later on, not an actual overall director. No, but it was. I think it was your presence that. Yeah, I was. I was. Mean, a really good feeling in the club because what I always noticed about you, Scott, was that all the girls that worked there, whether it was in Stringfellows or Angels or the Hippodrome, the girls, they could have been maybe a vulnerable side to them, but you were always so kind, as was your dad. You were kind and considerate to them always. And I think that they felt quite safe when you were around. Well, there's a reason for that. Because I listened to what my dad told me. He said, don't chase the girls. They don't need that. If you can remember, they're there for a job. And I kind of worked it out myself as well. And that was it. Once they, There's a couple of them. That, there are some sharp cookies out there that will try and get into you to try and... Because they want the big spenders. So if they think that you can talk to the big spenders and get them in there, they will try their best to get in your good side or whatever. And you've got to remember... And I had to learn how to, you know, have a conversation with somebody where you could be a bit suggestive about being over the top, without suggesting more, and basically putting up a slight barrier. If, so, if one of the girls was taking too much attention into me, I used to avoid her for a bit and talk to others for a while. Because it was a kind of, you've just got to just, hang on a minute, there's a there's a point here, you can't go any further. And I did take it to the heart about my dad. And also, I have to say, as a personal thing, I never really went for anybody way younger than me at all anyway. You're just a really nice guy. And you did learn so well from your dad because your father was a, a very charismatic figure. Obviously, everybody knew that about Peter. Mm. He was a really kind man. He and was. he was always kind to me. And I just never forget the way people treated me. And he, he was a lovely well, man. The, the, the thing that is, is that, that the press can make and break people. And my dad knew how to play them. Sometimes he'd write some crap about him. And he would more or less, you know, what's all this? You know, he says, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He says, there's nothing worse than being talked about than not being talked about. Yeah. He says, I don't care what they say, it doesn't affect me. And he was very good at not manipulating them as much as they were trying to manipulate him. He was good at dealing with everybody. Uh, but, 
but your whole family, your, your family, your mother is a lovely lady, Coral, mm-hmm. and your sister. I know you're not like your half yeah. brother and sister with Karen, but I was really friendly with Karen too. She was so so sweet and always just lovely. We always got on incredibly well. I mean, you're just a a, a lovely well, family. Well, this the thing is, is my mum and my dad were a very good team when they were together because my mother was very good with people as well, and but dad was very good at talking to people being interested in people, and he read a lot of stuff. I'm not joking, he had books like coming out of his ears and stuff, and he used to read quite a lot, and he was interested in a lot of different subjects. So he seemed to know a little bit about certain things, and he could be very entertaining and very funny to be with, and if you're on his table, you never got bored. I've been on tables where other people come on, it turns into a riot every single time, because it was just fun, and it was funny. He always managed to put the right people together, and my mother was just as good at being involved with people as well, and, she, and he kind of... Together with Mum and his PA, uh, Pat J, she they kind of were able to filter out the people that didn't need to see, and he was quite good at seeing that too. Because some people can try and get into you for various different reasons, and you've got to know when to step back. And he was very good at being able to turn situations around as well, which is why whenever the club went through a stage that was a little bit sticky, you find that he didn't have an agent; it was all himself, and basically. Sometimes if things are going on in the world, he'd get called up every now and then, Peter, what do you think of this, blah, 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 from the press, from TV stuff or radio, and he'd have a comment. He never turned anybody away, and that's why it kind of worked. And he sometimes would say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and bring up such and such, and he'd organise, go on radio or whatever, and things would pick up again at the club because it's about reminding people we were there. And uh, also, he was such a personality up front anyway always impeccably dressed, where it, whether he was out on a night or being casual. And I think the last time he ever wore a pair of jeans was in the 1970s. For a moment there onwards, it was just very quite upmarket, but not over the top, never, never over the and top. And so approachable, Scott. Yeah, very. I think he thrived on it to a degree, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> he knew what he was doing, your dad. Yeah. But you lost your father. Mm. It's almost five years, is it? Um, well, it's, yeah, it's four and a half, yeah. Right. Um, because I know that you lost your daddy a few months before I lost mine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we grow up with the most wonderful, wonderful men as our fathers, mm-hmm. you don't get over that. And, and, and I don't ever expect to get over losing my dad because with great love, there's great pain. And we just try and live the way they lived, with a, with a beautiful purity to their life, in, in the, the way that they were to people kind, considerate, always, experts in their fields, but just very, very good men. And since you lost your father, you've become an author and you've written a book about your dad. My dad was the king of clubs. So what was that like growing up as the son of that charismatic, funny, successful? I've said that, that book really didn't come out of me deliberately wanting to write a book while he was in hospital. It didn't really come to me then. At the end of the day, it was a case of, you know, the uh, the timing of what it was was really quite hard because we were sat in the hospital and I'd be talking to him about various things and we both kind of remembering different stuff and sometimes remember things slightly different to each other. And this is before it became terminal. So we were talking about all sorts of things. I went, oh, I should write that down. And sometimes I'd write some bits down that he'd said. So I'm, uh, I, kinda, I don't know why, it just kind of helped me at the time. And then when it was terminal, and they've told us, which was the biggest shock in the world at the time, and it was hard to take in, 
I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm getting better at talking about this right now. <laughs> it's still hard. I know you probably are saying uh, uh, Absolutely. And, you know, it's fine because you're in a safe space with me anyway. Mm-hmm. You and I have known each other forever. You can say what you like and it's fine. And if well, you get emotional, then you do. Yes. But the, uh, but the thing is, it's kind of when it was found out that I just wrote things down a little bit and then I kind of left it for a long time because then I was, we started playing uh, uh, hospital tag myself, Karen, and Bella, we all kind of see each other. For the last six months, he was never alone at night at all. We were all spending time. I was staying with him. I was working at the club at night. And then I'd sometimes, I'd go and see Dad, then go into the club. And then, excuse me, at the weekends, it was usually my turn to stay away from the club. And I'd stay with him in the hospital overnight. And he used to enjoy that because he used to get my iPhone with music on. And I'd play 60s music, the stuff he likes, the Beatles, the Kinks, this, you know, the Rolling Stones, this, that and the other. I did all sorts. You know something, I must just, because when Daddy was in the hospital, we used to play him all the people that he loved. Mm-hmm. Ella Fitzgerald, Sammy Davis Jr., I, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, the same thing, because obviously he grew up around that music. But you could see it was the only thing, I, I, I kind of got the feeling it was the thing that kind of kept him relaxed into what the situation was. Because obviously when they got given that, uh, terrible call of it being terminal. There was a lot of things that had not been resolved and sorted out within the business itself, and also they hadn't been telling anybody at work what was happening. So it was really there was a lot of people were shocked at the end. He didn't really tell anybody anything. And I kept saying, "You've got to tell your managers." I said, "Well, no, 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 they'll be fine. They'll be, no, no, you've got to let them know what's going on here." And eventually did, and it was all a bit of a shock to them all, obviously. But. Um, but listening to the music was important for him, even though I know his hearing wasn't as good. Like me, he has a deaf ear and tinnitus. Only his was in his left ear, mine's all in my right. So I've got the same thing, is, which is why I was always stuck or stood or sat on his right-hand side so I could hear him and he could hear me, which is always quite entertaining sometimes, And uh, if you're on the wrong side. <laughs> but he... Um, so I'd be playing the music and he's going, we need better speakers. I mean, we're in a hospital, Dad. I can't really have music blasting out past 11 o'clock at night in a hospital here. But we did the best we could, and it was quite nice, all that. And um, and I enjoyed those nights too, because I just played stuff that he liked. And he was a massive, always a Beatles fan, because they kind of half helped him get going because of yeah, one of I his remember nights in the 60s. Yeah, I remember in the beginning in the club yeah. Yeah. in the north. Well, in the, in the 60s in uh, the Mojo, he booking bands, he wasn't doing great. This is right at the beginning, like 63 and he used to tell this story a lot because the, the way it, the, the, the cost of having the band went up within 24 hours because he went from saying, all right, we're going to cost you 60 quid for the band. And then 24, he said, oh, I'll go and think about it. And then he rings back Epstein again. So, okay, I'll go with it. He said, well, it's 80 quid now. So, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so at the end of the day, and I actually did put that in my book as well. There's quite a few bits I put in there. And uh, yeah, at the end of the day, that's one of when he got, I had to change venue to put the Beatles on and it went bonkers from there and it gave them a good name and it kind of started from Sheffield onwards how he climbed and it was partly because the Beatles. That's incredible because Julian Lennon um, started coming to the club also when we were like 16, 17 and he and I are still friends to this day Mm -hmm. and that's amazing because when I remember when Julian was in Stringfellas when we were there every night all of us and everybody wanted to manage Julian Mm -hmm. and he couldn't trust anybody he really couldn't because he Somebody had tried to, you know, take too much from him and he just didn't know what to do. And my boyfriend at the time, Dean, who was, remember Dean? I remember Dean. Dean was a very... White suit, Rolls Royce. 
exactly. Rolls Royce at 18. Walking stick and he didn't need a walking stick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But had so much money, he didn't know what to do with it. And did, did you know, I don't know if you know that it was mummy, my mum, who started that relationship between Dean and Julian working together. She said, Dean, you're not doing anything. Julian can't trust anyone because they were both around at our house the yes. whole time. Why don't you work together? And Dean was so nervous to ask Julian at first whether he wanted to do that. And my mum said, just mention it to him, approach him. He doesn't trust anybody else. He trusts you. And that's when Dean said to Julian, how about if I manage you? And Julian said, yes. And that was the beginning of it. There were the meetings at Chrysalis. Or was it Chrysalis, was it? With Richard, I really don't know. Do you remember those days with Richard Branson? And that was the beginning of their career. See, also initiated through Stringfellows. Yeah. Those days... He used to come along because he loved it and he loved to drink the Blue Jewel and he had his birthday party here. Do you remember a birthday party and a white horse got brought in? Yes, I do. Club? With Stephanie Lamotta on it. With what, sorry? Stephanie Lamotta, Ray, Jake Lamotta, the, the boxer. Being Lady His Godiva. daughter. Yeah, but it's his daughter, <laughs> Stephanie. On the, that's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Do you know what? There are so many tales to tell. I tell yeah. you, we lived through magical times in Stringfellows. Yeah. The stories that we could that we could retell all of us, Scott, together. They, they, yeah. they were times that, that I don't think will ever be known again in London. We were lucky well, to have lived through that. Well, this is it. This is like all through life. There's different periods of time. In the 80s was a very affluent, exciting time um, where music exploded. Even I mean, rock and roll started everything, and then later on there was disco in the 70s. In the 80s, all the modern romantic music and, and big shoulder pads and all that sort of stuff and uh, obviously, I'm I'm still stuck in the I'm still stuck in the eighties for the music, to be honest. I, I I am too. I have to admit, and the nineties. But but with the book, it's a very poignant, beautifully written memoir about your father. Yes. Well, I'm very proud of you for writing that. Well, it was a it was a hard slog because when I did it, and I after we kind of lost him, I kind of I'd written things and I started to write things down just for to get things out of my head. And I wrote it down in a style that I thought, this is just me telling a story. Da, 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 da. And then one of my friends was over and I said, yeah, have, a listen, have a read this, what do you think? And she says, can't you just, you need to publish this. I, said, I, I don't know, I'm just doing it to just get things out. She said, no, no, you've, this is all, you should think about this. And then I thought about it. I thought, okay, I'll write the book. And it's right in the middle of COVID, so nothing's happening. Not going anywhere. So I thought, well, I've got no excuses really. So I just started writing it. I just write, wrote as much as I could. And even then, the stories that are not in that are remembered since. doesn't mean I'm going to do an update or anything. I think you need a second volume. <laughs> I don't. No, well, I've actually, actually got a second book that I've not finished. It's about purely about racing career, of how I got into all that. And it's going to be basically, this is what happens when you don't get to F1, basically. <laughs> Scott, you know, it's... It's been, it's been so wonderful speaking to you today because knowing you as well as I do and us having this... We have a wonderful friendship that goes back decades and we may not see each other for years at a time, but we'll speak. And then when we see each other, you know, true friendship is as if we haven't even been apart. So, um, you're the only one I let call me Scotty Kins. You are. You are. Nobody else can get away with that. (laughs) But anyway, I hope people will listen to this. I'll have a go at trying to find my book, which is, you can find it on Amazon and anywhere more or less, or if you can bully your local, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Bookseller to, to get it in. Scott, it's called Scott Stringfellows. My dad was the king of clubs, published by Unbound Publishing. And yes, 
No, no, it's not anymore. It's, it's Lambert and Moody. They changed right. the name. Lambert Moody. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But available on Amazon for sure. Yeah, you can definitely find it on Amazon because I still see it on there. Thank you for coming down. And for your next book, I would love you to come and do another. HD Longwave. I'm not really working when it you're right ready. now, but if I do again, when you're I'll ready. let you know. But thank you so much for spending That's the time right. with us today. And thank you, everybody, for sharing your time with us at HD Longwave. And please join us for the next HD Longwave with hairy tales of the city, tales of the city and beyond. Until then, best wishes from me, Janice, our very special guest, Scott, and the HD team.